Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast. Hello there from Bedford. How are you all? How are you all holding up? I've had a massive increase in people writing to me over this last couple of weeks, which is uh, very interesting. I appreciate every single email, positive, negative, challenging, recommending books, films, um, and, and I do try and reply to everyone. So if you've got any thoughts during this time, if you're a bit quiet, if you want to drop me an email, feel free to do it. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with Andreas Antonopoulos. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. So first up today, we have BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. And I just caught up with Zach and Flory, found out what is coming up with the business. And I've also invited them on the show next week because sometimes there's a lot of questions around volatility and how that affects their products. So they decided to come on the show. They agreed. So we're going to record that next week. And with BlockFi... You have access to their interest accounts, which allows you to put your crypto to work and earn monthly interest payments with your Bitcoin, Ether or GUSD. Also, they have crypto back loans, which allows you to access liquidity without selling. By using your crypto as collateral, you can unlock up to 50% of the value of your assets in USD. Also, they've got two things coming soon. They've got a mobile app and they've got their sets back credit card. It's going to be a very exciting year for BlockFi. If you are interested in finding out more, Please do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. And also, let's talk about Kraken. Have you checked out their beautiful mobile-first app? Whether you're sitting on the couch watching the Tiger King or going for a walk to escape the lockdown, with Kraken Pro, you can trade Bitcoin on the go. And also, despite all this price volatility, the crisis has seen a surge in interest in crypto, and Kraken is hiring. They are looking to increase their workforce by 10%. So good times at Kraken. They are always looking to build the best tools for you traders out there. They provide all traders with a broad suite of tools for trading Bitcoin, from Kraken.com to Kraken OTC. They are also the most secure cryptocurrency exchange, and they have world-class customer support. I've always said this. But there is no better place to trade Bitcoin. So you want to find out more, head over to Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so onto the show today. And if you've been listening to my last few shows, you will notice that I've been wrestling with a number of concepts. I've been going down the libertarian rabbit hole for the last year or two, and I've always got questions about it. But what's happening right now with the crisis is really challenging some of my thinking or some of my ideas around what libertarianism means to me and also how society operates together. So I reached out to Andreas. I know Andreas is socially conscious as well, and I had questions for him because I know he's thinking about similar things to me. So I just wanted to debate some of these things with him, and I asked him, and he agreed to come on. And now, listen, with Andreas, I've learned so much from him. When I first got into Bitcoin, I was addicted to his YouTube videos, you know, like everyone else. Everyone else has gone through that journey. And he has been on the show a couple of times, two previous shows. I recommend you definitely go and check them out, especially the recent one where we talked about why we need Bitcoin. That's part of my beginner's guide. But today's a little different. Andreas isn't the full-on anarcho-capitalist, extreme libertarian. He is definitely socially conscious and takes some criticism for that. But I also feel like I question some of these societal issues like he does. He often talks about the less privileged areas of society. And with such a huge social and economic impact with coronavirus, 
I thought it would just be great time to get him on because there are other people questioning these ideas. Maybe not publicly, maybe they're a little bit nervous to put them out, but I've definitely had a lot of DMs and emails from people who are also being challenged right now, also thinking about these issues. And there is no harm in debate. There's no harm in having a discussion around some of these important issues. So I hope you enjoy this. As ever with Andreas, it's a massive show. But if you have any feedback, please do reach out to me. I do read every email and I do reply to everyone. I'm willing to be challenged with all of my ideas. Just reach out on hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, as this lockdown continues, I'm just continuing to work hard on creating the best content around the most relevant topics as possible. If you're interested in checking out any of my other work, if you haven't checked out my other podcast, Defiance, please do. There's lots of non-Bitcoin shows there, also covering coronavirus. I just interviewed an ICU doctor in London talking about what he's facing every day going into work. You can find all that at defiance.news. I've also been making films, so there's a couple of films up there as well. Would love your feedback. Would love you to check it out. Outside of that, have a great weekend. Andreas, how are you? I'm doing as well as as can be given the circumstances. I've been very lucky to have somewhere to uh, weather this storm, this pandemic, and I'm isolating. I have been actually now for almost six weeks, and yeah, it's uh, it's hard. Well, you like me are used to traveling quite a bit, moving yeah. around. No longer a nomad. That lifestyle is currently dead. We'll see how it goes in the next year or so. But uh, yeah, doing doing great with staying at home for a bit. And I, I, I think I'm in the count my blessings phase of grieving the life that no longer exists and the normality that no longer exists. But, uh, you know, it comes in waves. You know, some days... I'm counting my blessings and feeling very lucky. And other days I'm despairing and freaking out and going stir crazy. So just one day at a time. Although I, yeah. I can't remember what day it is. That's the other thing that's happened. Is yeah, it's like Christmas. Days, yeah, all of the days have just blurred together and it's just weird. Yeah, it's like Christmas. That time, that time of year between Christmas and New Year where you forget what day it is because it's so it becomes so unimportant yeah the days are only usually important because of work because most people do a five-day week but no i feel similar it's uh, really strange times trying to trying to understand the reality of it all and deal with it. it's quite overwhelming because you know we're living during historic moment in time even if it was to, for some amazing stroke of luck some vaccine was found in the next six weeks it doesn't change the impact of what's happened here. It's unprecedented right. times. And uh, I was actually, you know, I was talking to my daughter and son about it last night because they had so many questions. And I was saying, this this will be something you talk to your kids about and talk about how you lived through this and what happened. It's part of the history books now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, how are you taking it all in? And, and the reason I asked that and the reason I wanted to talk to you is I, like many, have trained myself and learn a lot about Bitcoin through your videos and your talks. It's you, know, you, you don't need me to tell you a lot of people that one of their first points is to go to YouTube and watch mm -hmm. a lot of videos. And then following that, you and I have done a couple of interviews where we've talked about Bitcoin, but also in the context of politics, the state, the global economy. Mm -hmm. And now we're in one of these situations where it's highly relevant. And also, sometimes I find myself almost not wanting to talk about it because I think 
I don't want to be opportunist about any of my language, but at the same time, it's, it's impossible not to recognise this is one of the biggest tests ever of the state and of money, mm-hmm. or probably the biggest test of state and then money in my lifetime. So yeah. how, how do you, how are you how are you processing all that in the context of everything you've you've learned, everything you've t- talked about in all your you know, hundreds of talks? For me, ironically, this is perhaps not the biggest test of money in my lifetime, but that's because I grew up in Greece. Greece, yeah, in Greece. So we had some Where pretty big banks. We had some pretty big tests, and um, not, not least of which was the introduction of the euro just after the devaluation of the drachma. Yeah, it's 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 really weird because. As as you said, I I don't want to spend too much time talking about it. I think there have been some very crass responses and glib responses to what is a you know a humanitarian catastrophe, and Bitcoin seems like a very small consideration in the big big scheme of things. But at the same time, the the, the primary focus of of Bitcoin you know, came from being born during an economic crisis. I've always found that there's two major themes in Bitcoin. The one I've been most interested in from the beginning is the theme of economic exclusion or the ability to create economic inclusion through an open system to bank the unbanked and underbanked to serve the other six billion. And that's one theme that that is important right now. And then there's this other theme that I think is fairly recent over the past three or four years that has gotten a lot of attention, which is kind of the monetary maximalist theme in Bitcoin, the, um, the, which has spawned a, a bunch of memes from the to the moon to the hyper bitcoinization concept stacking sats money printer goes brr, <laughs> you know all of these memes that are coming out and and that has never been my primary interest in in bitcoin i never came at this from an economist perspective because i'm not an economist or from a monetary perspective to me that's an interesting side story to an open protocol for money is the monetary policy of that open protocol. To other people, that's the central theme. The monetary policy is the central theme and the open protocol is secondary. Um, you know, I, I think it's really interesting right now because these two different perspectives are, are both highly relevant because we're, we're seeing kind of the, the war on cash accelerate the need to use money as a surveillance tool accelerate, all of which creates the need for um, open banking and open money protocols for those who are unbanked and underbanked or about to become underbanked, unbanked, or controlled through money. And at the same time, you've got this crazy amount of stimulus that is truly unprecedented. A few years ago, during a talk, I said, you know, I want to talk to you about one of the most radical monetary experiments ever. And that monetary experiment is not Bitcoin. It's, it's modern central banking. 
it's that at this moment we have 21 central banks doing zero or negative interest rates and feeding unlimited stimulus into an economy that is barely moving and we're almost 10 years out of a recession. I said that back in 2017, 2018. And, you know, now that's even more true. We're in a truly unprecedented monetary experiment, and it's not Bitcoin. <laughs> it's, it's everything else that's happening. Um, and I, I don't really have any predictions as to where this is going. I, I'm, I'm fresh out of predictions. I, my, my prediction time frame is usually fairly short. I look out months at a time, not years. And and now I can't even make predictions about next week. So I, I think we're we're at a point of huge uncertainty. Do you remember the prediction you made in our last show? I don't, no. Uh, but the I, internet I, I, has an incredible way of reminding me of all the predictions I made, especially yeah. the wrong ones. <laughs> well, actually, this is a right one. Um, okay. I don't have it written. I don't have it written down. I'm just remembering it because you've just okay. said it now. So I'm going to try and get this as best as I can. I'll have to double check, but I'm almost certain you said during the next economic collapse, this won't be a situation where Bitcoin flies. Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin will likely fall oh, with right, the stock yes. market fall, and then it's at that point that it may decouple. Yes, And the reason I remembered it is somebody tagged it in a tweet the other day. They actually said, this is how Andreas predicted it. In, in January, yeah, at, that was, yeah. yeah. And we all get predictions right and wrong. Um, but so far, essentially, you're right in that. And one of the things I've been talking to people about is that, how, how do you teach people about Bitcoin? I'm always thinking about teaching and getting new people in. And some people say, well, sometimes you have to go through pain. And perhaps you're right. And perhaps this next period of whether it's six months, a year, five years, 10 years, this period will be a period of pain. Perhaps this economic stimulus will lead to inflation. Perhaps people will see products become more expensive, maybe not to the extent that Venezuelans experienced, but still to some extent. Perhaps they will see savings wiped out. And maybe that's the pain that will go through, that will teach people that there are other options out there. Bitcoin is another option. So perhaps you, perhaps your prediction there is right. Well, I, the prediction was was predicated on two things. One was understanding that the Bitcoin bubble was not separate from the broader bubble, meaning that uh, cheap money leads to asset bubbles uh, across the board and people chasing for yield with with not too many good investment. It decouples investment decisions from fundamentals and ties them directly to the availability of cheap money. You know, when when the the future cost of money is is zero, um, then the amount of risk you're willing to take in an investment to get yield just goes to infinity. So you might as well just throw money at everything. And in that period of time, of course, that means the Bitcoin was getting the benefit of that, as were all cryptos, just because there was so much money sloshing around in the economy. So the prediction really was that at least in the beginning of an economic depression, we're going to see a, a pullback of investment because there'll be a liquidity crunch. And that's exactly what happened. And, and Bitcoin suffered from that, too. I don't know how long it takes to decouple the two, but 
I think right now we're kind of in this very weird interim phase because now we've gone from money is cheap to it's expensive to save. Um, you know, uh, it, it's it's yeah. even it's even worse than before. I don't know if we're we're going to see hyperinflation, uh, Venezuelan style, or if we're going to see kind of a weird um, stagflation style like we had in the 70s, or if we're just going to see such an enormous wealth transfer to the super rich that it, it really exhibits itself in inequality and an inability to invest in, in, in your future. So like maybe milk will still be cheap, but healthcare, education, housing, and quality of life gets expensive, right? Maintaining your rights that have been commoditized becomes expensive. And maintaining freedom and independence and self-determination becomes expensive. Maybe those are the products that become very expensive. We've been in this period of, of commoditization of rights over the past uh, couple of decades where it's become increasingly expensive to be free. And so, yeah, the thing is the, the, the consumer product index or purchasing index CPI is going to probably show that there is no inflation just like it did for the last decade because milk is still cheap because it's massively subsidized. Um, you know, just like in Venezuela, gas costs less than water uh, for a very long time. But everything else is massively inflated. Yeah, I, I, I don't know when we see the decoupling or how the decoupling will look. I feel like we're going through a period of, of great uncertainty. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, Bitcoin is serving a very important role. It's it's allowing me to, um, to engage with a global audience and also to engage with a global workforce and pay my, my employees, my staff, my suppliers, my contractors to help me do more work. And it's also giving me an opportunity to have more financial independence, but not because it's going to the moon, but, but because it continues to give me a degree of freedom that I don't have with traditional money. So from that perspective, it's already serving its, its role. We'll see if the, the monetary theory of, of Bitcoin is, is correct and whether it starts behaving more and more like gold or even some kind of super gold over the next decade. But I think in any case, it's going to take time for these effects, right? Both in terms of the damage that all of this malinvestment and stimulus is going to do, and in terms of the benefits of alternative systems, it's going to take probably near a decade before we, we see this play out. What happened today will have a ripple effect in the future. Hmm. Well, there's a few things I want to go through with you. I've obviously followed you and known you for a while now. And you're not one of these people in the Bitcoin world who is without conscience. I know certain things weigh heavily on you to the point that some people may overtly criticize you, which I think is, um, and I think is always fair. But I know you think of the humanity in situations like this. Um, you're not the kind of person just to sit there and just say, well, you know, what will be will be. We should let this disease flush through the system. We should let the companies fail. And yeah, I, I know you think about these things quite deeply. And I'm wrestling with a few things. So there's some things I wanted to, to put to you because the other interesting sure. thing about Bitcoin is that yes, Bitcoin is a, 
a form of money, but it also introduces you to new topics. When I got into Bitcoin, it was censorship resistance to buy a product for my dying mother that I couldn't buy with normal fiat money. And then I've been introduced to libertarianism, you know, privacy, a bunch of different concepts and ideas that you know I've learned more and more about. And I've I've never claimed to be a full libertarian because I've never been able to fully rationalize a, a, a stateless society. I've not got there, but I appreciate a number of the things that libertarians stand for. But coronavirus has come in and completely shifted my worldview, mm-hmm. completely thrown it back. And it's made me really challenge some of these ideas that anarcho-capitalists have or the anti-state people have in terms of trying to be practical in the world we live in, in that we whatever your future desire is for society, we do have democracy and we do have a government. So trying to rationalise the two. And observing human behaviour through this, for me, has been really interesting because coronavirus has almost been a test of identity for some people. Some people's identity is so tied to being anti-state that there is an inability to even rationalise an option whereby right now perhaps a state solution, even temporary, may be what is required to protect significant part of humanity because this is a humanitarian crisis. I think some people can't admit that because their identity is tied to anti-state. So any admission of that is a is like a destruction of their identity. And this is a behavior that I've observed through in this process and I've been trying to challenge people and and I've I've come up against some walls. What what have your observations been through this? Well, it's even it's even more extreme in the United States right now because the coronavirus pandemic has become politicized and it's pretty much lined up in in terms of partisan politics, primarily because the initial response by the the president and his party was to downplay the risk. And as is the case with many many of these belief systems, people got invested in that perspective. And when it proved to be wrong, they were unable to shift from that position. And therefore, anybody who um, was saying, hang on, this isn't the flu, this isn't business as usual, this is not normal, this is something extreme and dangerous and very threatening, um, they, they, people like that were painted as alarmists and discarded and ignored and 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 this has led to some really truly bizarre behaviors, like the kind of defiant risk taking that you expect from you know teenagers being executed by by boomers in southern states who have the most to lose. Right, <laughs> like yeah. I'm not going to change my life because that will that if I take precautions, then coronavirus wins. As if coronavirus is some kind of sentient thing that's trying to terrorize us, rather than you know a self-replicating piece of RNA that doesn't know it's in your lungs uh, and doesn't care if you're Republican or Democrat. <laughs> it's a very bizarre anthropomorphizing of the threat and kind of philosophical response to to something that 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 simply is and and has no position this is you know the coronavirus isn't doing this to make a point it's doing this to make more virus 
<laughs> quite simply put. Uh, and, and we're just petri dishes. It's it's really bizarre because uh, a, a month ago I I told I was having a conversation with some friends and I said, mark my words, there will be people who will not only defy this, but they will make uh, political performance art out of their defiance. We have a phenomenon here in the States called rolling coal. Um, have you seen that? You know I've heard that? it. Yeah. No, it's, where people, it it's where people modify their pickup trucks and remove uh, catalytic converters and things like that. And instead, tune their engines to be over rich so that they produce thick black diesel smoke out of these stacks that come out of the back of the pickup truck, or they sometimes turn them up so they're vertical. And so then when they rev their engines, it makes this thick black smoke coming out the top. And it's a performative political statement against ecological attitudes, right? And I'm mm -hmm. like, these people who have that kind of attitude of performative defiance are going to go out and they're going to lick produce, cough on bananas, and, and beat up people for wearing masks. And my friends were like, oh, come on, nobody's that stupid. <laughs> and of course, all of those things have happened. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, sorry, I went off on a bit of a tangent. No, it's fine. It, it's a really weird phenomenon. Um, it's funny you should make that alignment with the politics there as well. There's a really great article in Wired last week from Gilad Elderman, I think, where he was identifying the parallels between coronavirus and global warming. Right. In terms of political reaction in that very much conservatives, especially in the US, were almost in denial, whereas the Democrats were almost the opposite, uh, kind of pushing for a, a kind of global recognition of what's going on with coronavirus. And he, he identified that. And this is where the initial defiance from the president came from, because considering the impact of coronavirus on the economy, on his own presidency, it's, it was almost too difficult for, for something like him to comprehend and, and change policy on, because what is actually required is quite ironically, as we have a conservative government now in the UK, and it's a conservative government in the US, that they're actually starting to push quite socialist policies to get through this. So there was, essentially, the coronavirus is, is exactly what's been playing out with global warming, but at a thousand x the speed. Yes, and and the the, the problem is that um, from my perspective, and climate change is is as big a disaster, and and maybe actually closely related to the emergence of these viruses, zootropic viruses, and things like that. But because it moves so slowly, we ignore it at, at huge peril. But regardless, I mean, the the bottom line is this isn't political, and so interpreting this kind of as a battle between libertarianism and socialism, I think is, is seeing it wrong. There's, there's a certain, I, it, it's, it's post-libertarian, it's post-socialist, it's post-politics. And I think the, the, the biggest lesson that comes from this is that there is such a thing as society and there is such a thing as community. To to quote Margaret Thatcher's famous, you know, there is no society, yes. there's just people and families. Um, 
I'm paraphrasing, of course, but you know, the, the one of the difficulties is that this forces you to understand that uh, in 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 certain areas, such as public health, um, we are only as healthy as the least healthy of us. We are only as healthy as the most vulnerable. And when you have a system that doesn't give a shit how rich you are and will kill you anyway, that really brings to force kind of the the public nature of this of this threat, which is that if we don't take care of of public health, health of the entire community and the the weakest chain, then everybody's at risk. And then that's not a socialist perspective. It's a simple fact. It's it's physics, it's chemistry, it's math. Uh, it's reality. It has nothing to do with your philosophy, your political philosophy. And what w- what it's doing is it's straining all political philosophies that are sufficiently abstract and detached from reality as to be able to play these fanciful, almost sophistry games. Like, how do you apply the non-aggression principle when breathing is a form of aggression? Right. It's like a really the, good point. The basis of libertarian... My, I think many of the principal libertarians is is the concept of the non-aggression pact, right? Um, mm-hmm. The NAP. And the idea is as long as you're not hurting somebody else, you're free to do what you want and you, you, no one is allowed to use violence and coercion and force on others. But here's the problem. Being in a public space, especially if that's a contained public space, and breathing less than six feet from another person is aggression at this moment because every one of us can potentially be a virus producing machine. And and so, you know, it's very, very difficult to, to overcome kind of the reality of that because that calls then for the kinds of, even though it's perfectly consistent with the non-aggression principle to say, and that's why you can't go out in public and not wear a mask. The only way to actually apply that in in a society is with the coercive force of the state, because there will always be idiots, and those idiots will go out and they will endanger millions of people with their idiotic behavior. Whether you know we even have a term for it now, COVID idiots, and it really challenges kind of the abstract nature of many of these political philosophies because the reality has is much more harsh so uh, you know the the old saying there are no atheists in a foxhole which i think is offensive but i interviewed uh, scott horton Mm -hmm. this week do you know scott horton no he's he's a libertarian anti-war guy very smart guy Mm -hmm. and i wanted to escape out of the kind of bitcoin libertarian world and, and talk to a kind of traditional known libertarian and i wanted to put the challenge to him i just wanted to say because i said to him look i'm struggling with this because i i did admit that i think we need a state response which came back with the you know you're a bootlicker kind of response but i'm trying to be practical about this in that i have friends who are health workers for example and they're going to work facing the prospect they might get sick and they might they might die it's happening we've had 50 over 50 in italy and the first two or three in the uk we've just had a just saw in the US this absolutely genius surgeon who's one of the world's best neurosurgeons and uh, surgeons for Siamese twins died from coronavirus. Like This is happening. We are losing geniuses of medicine. And even if somebody wants to go out and do what they choose, they might end up 
leading to other people needing more help or that overflow of the health system. So I just wanted to, I wanted to talk to a traditional libertarian who isn't exposed to Bitcoin, who maybe isn't so radicalized, and just say to them, what do you think? And he came back with a very good response. I'll quote a few. He said, I don't think that it's necessarily an abandonment of libertarianism itself to concede that the government has a role in restricting behavior in a public health crisis. And he goes on to talk about, but we must to be extremely vigilant that there isn't this erosion of civil liberties. Yeah. Um, the UK has been pretty good at this. Already there's a lot of pressure on the police for overstepping the mark, whereas we've seen in Hungary that that is very much becoming the new Turkey. Well, the, the UK has already eroded civil liberties into a thin filigree anyway, so at this point... Of course. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, his, his point, and, and it is a real challenge because even my own identity of somebody as a Bitcoin podcaster, late to libertarianism, learning about it, thinking, oh, but... In my heart, what do I actually believe? And I, I, I'm convinced there's too big a risk to not support right now as a British person to not support the government and not support the NHS. But with my own vigilance, vigilance that when this is over, that absolutely we need to push back to get where we were. But it's a real challenge. And I'm wrestling it going, ah, oh, if I admit this, I might lose audience. But it's what I feel in my heart. And I'm right. really, I have been struggling with it. It's it's very very dangerous, uh, without a doubt, because you know the most uh, the most effective responses have been by authoritarian governments that have been able to take extreme authoritarian measures, and yet the very reason we're in a pandemic is because of authoritarian uh, yep. government covering up and not managing uh, something that could have been a localized epidemic, and also not, not effectively managing the root causes of, of these kinds of, at least the zootropic pandemics. And we still, you know, I think it's, it's, it's dangerous to, to cast blame here. There's a lot of jokes going around about someone ate a bat and now I can't leave my house, but we don't know that it's actually zootropic. We don't know it came from the wet markets. It may have had a different origin. I don't think we yet have enough facts for that. But certainly, if if, if that is the case, the the the, the cover up of an authoritarian government to downplay this thing in order to save face that that China did, uh, and then the US did and then the UK did and uh, sort of you know even even western uh supposedly free governments and 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 countries have responded with with kind of a knee jerk reaction that I, that makes this worse so the problem here is that government is the solution but government is also the cause government yes. is the only way we can coordinate in order to create the necessary circumstances to avoid a catastrophic pandemic. Um, but government is also what caused this to even be an option of a catastrophic pandemic. Um, you know, it's it's subtle. In the, in the US, for example, right now, um, doctors are being fired from hospitals for revealing the lack of personal protective equipment. They're being told not to wear masks in waiting rooms and things like that so as not to scare the patients. Um, they're being uh, uh, told to downplay the, the pandemic. And, you know, a, a lot of that has to do with, and it's not just governments, also private corporations and the private 
healthcare system in in the United States. So e- even though we need coordinated response, we're going to see all of the worst problems of government validating the libertarian attitude that says that yeah, that that solution comes with side effects that are really, really, really bad. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to get government overreach, control, power plays, et cetera. No crisis will be left to waste and will be exploited fully. And I think someone said recently that this is a bit like 9-11 and the 2008 economic crisis wrapped in one. So we'll get all of the worst power-hungry Patriot Act, civil liberty eroding response, and at the same time, a massive bailout for the rich and large corporations. And that's exactly how it's, it's playing out. So, you know, I think it's important to realize that the, the answer to this is to recognize that society needs to act, but that is not the same as government needs to act. Meaning that the most effective things that have happened in the U.S., for example, have not been actions of the federal government, but have been actions of local government. Mm -hmm. Very much not centralized, but decentralized. It's been the governors and the mayors who have taken charge, primarily because the federal government has proven incompetent and slow to act. But, But the biggest successes have actually been popular culture and memes and spreading information in that way uh, so that people change their behavior. And that has nothing to do with government. That's society. And I think that's an important distinction that both libertarians and socialists, if you like, or statists uh, Hmm. miss, which is that there's a difference between society and government, the state and the community. We can achieve a lot by coordinating with our neighbors and protecting each other. And in fact, that's where all of the, the end result comes from a behavior change and the way we, we make personal sacrifices to protect our neighbors and those who are vulnerable around us, not because of a mandate, not because of enforcement, not because of coercion, but because of peer pressure and community response and Um, social stigma in some cases and social reward in other cases and the social feedback mechanisms, right, of approval and disapproval. That's what makes things work in a society, not the penalty of enforcement. Um, And uh, in many ways, in fact, government has actually undermined those social cues by spreading deliberate disinformation. So it's it's a mixed bag, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because because a lot of people will accept that only a strong government can solve this, and then you end up with a mess of Hungary and um, the kind of uh, consolidation of power that leads to very very long generation term dictatorships and semi dictatorships, and, um, and and at the same time you're not actually reducing the damage caused by this virus because the the state is not a benevolent entity that that is technocratic scientific and rational it's a it's a power hungry organism that protects its own power first and foremost and rewards uh, loyalty 
above logic. So you're going to get the worst possible outcomes in either case. Although I think in the US, the argument about libertarianism versus socialism is finding a very interesting nexus point in the issue of, of publicly funded healthcare. Um, because mm -hmm. this has really revealed how broken the healthcare system is in the US. It's not a private healthcare system that has competition, and it's not a public healthcare system that protects the vulnerable. It's the worst of both cases, right? So it's a, a system of cartel monopolies with obscure and opaque pricing that gouges everyone and produces very poor outcomes, and at the same time, leaves the most vulnerable to die. And in this public health crisis, we it's made it very clear that it's going to be far worse in the United States than many other developed countries because we have a system of, of, of social policies that mean that service workers who are very vulnerable um, have no sick pay, um, have no sick leave, uh, have no health care, and when they lose their jobs, uh, lose their health care at the same time, and will therefore go to work while sick in order to avoid losing their jobs. So all of the incentives are for them to spread this infection while trying to simply survive. That has revealed massive problems in the system of society we have. It has nothing to do with government or free markets, because it's, it's neither a free market nor a government system. It's just this corruptocracy that just milks the US GDP while leaving millions to die. It's it's a mess. And so whether you're a libertarian or a socialist, I think you can honestly, or any shade in between, or an enlightened centrist who thinks it's both sides, we can, all, we can all agree, I think, that something is wrong, right? Something is really rotten here. Um, and in, in every country, to different degrees, right? Um, so... I think one of the things that comes out of this is a change in attitude, because what this uh, coronavirus deal has revealed is that we can't continue business as usual because the system is broken. Now, if that is what comes out of this, and the answer to that is not some kind of extremist politics, but instead a greater recognition that change is needed, then we may get something good out of this. I don't know if I should be an optimist. Maybe it's premature. Next up, I talk to Andreas more about how coronavirus challenges identity. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. So I've got a new sponsor to welcome to the show today. It is sportsbet.io. Anyone who follows me on Twitter will know about these because this is the company that put the Bitcoin logo on a Premier League shirt. And they've invited me to the ground a couple of times to watch games. So we're talking about Watford FC. First time I went down was when they play Spurs. Unfortunately, they didn't stuff them. And the next time I went was to see Liverpool lose their first game of the season, which was devastating. But it's a really, really amazing team at Sportsbet. And while I was there, they were very keen to sponsor the show. They invited me out to Estonia to visit the office. And they really wanted to support the work I'm doing. And you know what? During negotiations, this is where the coronavirus thing happened. And I was fully expecting them to put a pause on things because there's not much sports happening right now. There's been a real pause on the sports. But the team reached out to me and said, look, Pete, we really want to work with you. We want to support the show. So look, the deal's still on. No change to anything. 
we're going to keep sponsoring the show. So very cool. So I've been checking out the website. I did my first deposit. I went and had a play. Not all sports are over. I am now a big fan of Russian ping pong. <laughs> but it's not only that. They've got a bunch of other stuff on sportsbet.io. They've got markets for esports, including eFIFA now. They have the Bitcoin Casino. And my favorite, they've got the poker rooms. And I've asked them to set up a special What Bitcoin Did poker tournament. They've agreed, so that's going to be coming soon. Anyway, if you want to find out more, please do go and check out sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. And if you want to check out the promotions, look, they've got loads of them. Just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. And yeah, just a final thanks to them for agreeing to sponsor the show. And also this week, I need to talk about Coin Tracker. And, you know, also a big thanks to John, Chandon and EJ for supporting the show over this last couple of months. I've recorded a recent show with Chandon. There's been some challenges to the idea of Bitcoin tax. How can you produce a Bitcoin show and then support a tax company? It's a really valid and really important question. So I got Chandon on. We recorded a little bonus show where I asked him about the tax. I asked him about the subpoenas to exchanges and the risks of not paying your tax. So if you don't want to pay your tax, cool. That's absolutely up to you. If you do pay your tax, then definitely go and check out Cointracker. I used it. I set it up very quickly, and I think my tax was calculated in about two minutes. Filings work in the US, UK, Canada, and Australia. It is free if you have under 200 transactions, but if you do have more than that, you can get a 10% discount by using the link cointracker.io forward slash a forward slash WBD and coin tracker is C-O-I-N-T-R-A-C-K-E-R. There's some other side effects that I hadn't even considered as well. And one specifically in the US is those people who would travel to Mexico for treatment or medicine because it's cheaper Mm -hmm. now can't even do that. They can't even cross the border to get their treatments that they rely on because they can't afford the cost in the US. That as an option has been closed down. There's people who are going to be getting sick, fearful they have coronavirus, too scared to phone an ambulance because of the daily cost of treatment. I don't know where they got with in terms of treatment for for coronavirus. I know Pelosi was pushing for... Everyone with coronavirus should be treated. I don't yeah. know where they've gone with that. I think the, are... and and I'm just just to give you some perspective and for your international audience, an ambulance in the United States costs between seven seven hundred and fifty dollars and twenty five hundred dollars. That's the ride. So it's the world's most expensive taxi, and um, and that's where your expenses start. So and even with insurance, they're going to bleed you dry every step of the way. So. Well, that's a funny one you should bring up. So I've got a friend from the UK who lives out in the US and his daughter broke her finger surfing and they, by mistake, they called the wrong ambulance and got a bill for it. Mm-hmm. So they And they couldn't get out of paying that bill. Mm-hmm. And then he was talking to me through every single part of the process, all the different bills he receives from all the different people, the deductible he had to pay. And even with very good health insurance it cost him thousands and thousands and it took him a year to recover from it. Right. Yeah. And I, I have personal experience. Um, I, when I first arrived in the U S I was diagnosed with cancer, uh, and I survived that 29 years old and I had platinum select choice PPO, amazing insurance, the best you could possibly get. It took me three years to finally plow through all of the paperwork after 
all of my treatments. It took another three years of billing and paperwork and disputes and claims and phone calls and conferences and lawsuits and threats of lawsuits to get underneath, out of underneath the, the pile of paperwork that that caused. Because, you know, like, oh yeah, well, the clinic you went to was covered, but the doctor you saw wasn't one who was participating in the program, blah, 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 blah. It's impossible to navigate. It's deliberately impossible to navigate. And it's a broken system. It's a broken system for those who have insurance and it's almost impossible to afford it for most people. So it's it's definitely a broken system and it's being revealed for the broken system it is now. I don't know what comes out of that because honestly, right now, it, it seems like we're heading for a repeat of 2016 with Biden versus Trump. But, mm. you know, this isn't a local issue. Um, the, the, the U.S. is going to have to find its own path here. I'm, I'm actually, you know, even more concerned by the implications of this on international trade and uh, international relations. Because uh, yep. one of the things we're seeing is this kind of finger-pointing, scapegoating, um, as as if this is a, a deliberate pandemic caused by someone. Uh, at least here in the U.S., people are looking for scapegoats and somewhere someone to blame. Right? Um, the the American patriot patriotic system, PC as we call it here, patriotically correct. Well, no, I call it that. Um, but to be patriotically correct, you have to find someone to retaliate with shock and awe and some kind of bombing campaign. And so the, the problem with coronavirus is we're not quite sure who we need to bomb in order to exact retribution for this damage to our economy. So that's the, the patriotically correct U.S. attitude. And at the same time, China's going through this massive propaganda campaign to blame the US. Iran is blaming the US. So I, I'm worried about what this does in terms of international political relations, because um, that's, that's the kind of spark that causes long-term problems. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I, I didn't know you were a cancer survivor. Is that is that publicly known? Is that something I've yeah, missed? I've talked. To, I've talked about it before. Yeah, yeah sure. I was. I was lucky. I got a f fairly uh, easy one, and I caught it early. So yeah. Okay. Well, congratulations on that. And another thing that I've been wrestling with, Andreas, is even post the virus leaving China, even if every country had done its best to react as quickly as possible. I still think we possibly would have headed to a recession because most likely the airlines and the airports still would have had to at least slow down, but probably still get to where we are to protect. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. So uh, almost certainly we would have had a recession anyway. So almost certainly there would have been a serious amount of job losses. Yeah. The meme about the, the money printer is valid, but at the same time, I'm not sure what else the government could do. Yes, some of the policies are clearly designed to bail out the billionaire friends and their companies. Okay, I understand and I've seen that. But but at the same time, I don't think there is any other option than to fire up the money printer at some point. Am I missing something? Yeah, I think you're missing a couple of things. So first of all, the trigger for the recession is the yes. virus, but the, it's yeah, not this the is cause. The pin. Yeah, of course. Right. It's not the cause. The cause is that after 2008, nothing got fixed. The 
global effort to financialize everything and do leverage and margin on everything and inflate these giant asset bubbles with stimulus for companies to do share buybacks and all of that. That kleptocracy, the, the corrupt um, kleptocracy of late stage capitalism and a broken system, didn't go away in 2008. Instead, what happened is it got inflated to an even greater extent by the previous bailout. So the problem is that in, in, a, in, a, in a free market system, the way you deal with failed companies, even failed sectors, is you let them go bankrupt, the investors get wiped out, they eat the losses, and the companies restructure under a bankruptcy plan, or they get liquidated and all of the equipment and employees get picked up by a more eager, uh, less indebted, younger company that has newer investors and better operating practices, and they build a better system out of the parts. Uh, that's what's supposed to happen. If you stop that from happening, what you end up doing is not only propping up the, the broken business, but effectively you undermine any possibility of the, the younger business, the newer business, the better business from competing. They can't compete against, for example, Boeing or American Airlines with all of their subsidies and tax breaks and uh, regulatory cushy positions and airport slots and all of their established uh, control they have. So when we bail out Boeing, what we're also doing is ensuring that there will never be a competitor to challenge Boeing, that there will never be a new aerospace company in the United States that can challenge Boeing. When we bail out GM, we damage Tesla. When we bail out American Airlines, we damage Southwest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and so the, the bigger problem with these bailouts is the, what they're doing is they're, they're encouraging even greater misallocation of capital by funneling more money into zombie corporations that, that, that have no chance, and they damage competition in the long run. So everybody loses. And so the idea that if Boeing wasn't bailed out, what would happen to the poor employees? Well, for $60 billion that Boeing got, bailed out, I think the average employee got, would, would have gotten several tens of thousands of dollars directly. So instead of bailing out Boeing with 60 billion, if they instead gave 10 grand to every one of its employees or more and burned the shareholders, then we would have a different outcome. And so the problem isn't just the, the fact that the money printer goes brr. The problem is that the decisions of how to allocate that money are removed from individual buyers, consumers, people, and redirected to one person, you know, Steve Mnuchin, who also happens to be the architect of the foreclosure fraud and got away with it. He was one of the owners of one of the companies that was doing robo-signing mortgage fraud after 2008. So now he's being rewarded with the ability to distribute trillions of dollars to the most deserving companies. When you concentrate that decision-making, instead of saying, okay, everybody, here's a check. Now you decide if Boeing or Southwest should continue to operate, or United or Southwest, or Boeing or Airbus, or whoever else, right? And uh, consumers should make that choice. 
That's not the bit I, I'm confused about. I don't disagree with, with that, actually. Although I, I, I can imagine there's some weird dynamics there between, you know, between countries imagining they need to stay competitive, that you, there is a grow. I don't know the name of the company, but there is that growing Chinese company that is manufacturing jumbo jets now. So I can imagine there's some kind of politicizing of this, where they're imagining they need to have a, a, a significantly large builder of jumbo jets in their nation. But Great I don't fundamentally disagree. I mean, if that's well, the, yeah. if if the, if that's the answer, then it's really simple: nationalize but, Boeing and have the profits go back to taxpayers. But we already know that doesn't work. We know and, that doesn't work. And and the Chinese nationalized aerospace aerospace company that is building competitors to the to and mostly they're building seven three seven like planes is unable to innovate and mostly copies the designs of Airbus and and Boeing down mm-hmm. to every last screw. Because if you kill competition like that, you end up creating these companies that are unable to innovate. Now, Boeing has become a company that is unable to build planes that fly and unable to innovate. <laughs> and the reason yeah. they've become that is precisely because of the twin evils of overregulation and financialization. So they became a bank that happened to have a plane department. Um, yes. Right? And and an overregulated bank with an overregulated plane department. So so the answer isn't to protect some national pride by creating a national aerospace company. That's a failed answer. But then again, you know, these aren't free market companies. None of these are free market companies. They haven't mm. seen a free market for decades at best. Yeah, but you, you wanted to talk more about the stimulus yeah, the, effect of yeah. central banking. Well, actually, no, I wanted to talk more about supporting the now millions, which might become tens of millions of people out of work. Yeah. Writing checks, because there are some people who believe that that shouldn't be done. These checks shouldn't be written. But I, I don't understand how you how that is an answer for a, for a group of people out of work, unable to work, with probably very little money, very little in savings. I just think it's a recipe for huge social unrest. And in the US, huge social unrest with a country that has a lot of guns. Yeah, well, and... the, 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 the thing is, if we're going to go for pure unbridled, up from your bootstraps capitalism, let's do that for everybody. The problem yeah. is that what we have is free market, doggy dog, rugged uh, entrepreneurial capitalism for the lower middle class and fully subsidized corporate socialism for everybody above that. And that's how the system works. So, so it's like, okay, well, if if you want to not cut checks to all of those unemployed people, be ready for all of the businesses that they buy stuff from to go under, all of the landlords to be default on their mortgages, and don't bail them out either. But of course, that's not what's going to happen. Essentially, what happens, and I think Bruce Fenton put it best, is we borrowed 18000 from the future income, right? Every person per capita in the United States borrowed $18,000 effectively from their future. And then they got a check for twelve hundred, and the other sixteen thousand five hundred went to corporations. You know, yeah. that's that's a pretty raw deal. No, I I I'm quite happy with the idea of uh, money printer go brr 
and providing liquidity in order to um, give everybody a check for the next several months to avoid the liquidity crunch that comes from everybody staying at home. But we will still not avoid the productivity crunch that comes from that. And when you have people who don't have disposable income, whose entirety of their income goes to pay for foods, healthcare, and housing, uh, and you give them a check that barely covers housing, none of that's going to go into the economy to stimulate the economy. It's a wealth, it's going to go to pay landlords for rent in its vast majority. So even the $1,200 check is effectively a bailout for landlords. And I say that as a landlord myself, you know, and I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to take a bailout, but I didn't need it. Um, what, what, what I needed was, was the ability to afford healthcare, which is a whole other issue. But uh, anyway. Mm, yeah. So how much are you thinking about the post-coronavirus world? And one of the things that are on your mind, obviously healthcare, we've talked about that. I'm assuming how how much our civil liberties have been eroded. Uh, I know others are worrying about the, the fear of privacy invasions that uh, we may have to be handing over all phone data just because we need to prepare for the next coronavirus that may come, similar to the invasions of our privacy with regards to any future potential terrorist act. What, right. what are the things that you're considering about? What are you worried about? Also, what are you optimistic about? We shouldn't just be miseries here. <laughs> so, I, yes, I am worried about all of these surveillance uh, effects. I'm worried, of course, not because people in power will do a power crap. Um, because that's that's the obvious thing for them to do. What I'm more worried about is that people will become everyday normal people who have no power, will become increasingly tolerant of, desirous of authoritarian responses because they feel unsafe and they want someone to tell them everything's going to be okay as long as we stop those dirty people from spreading the disease. That's the kind of sentiment that leads to very dangerous things. It's one thing if you have the government overreach while being resisted by the population. It's another thing if you have the government overreach while being cheered on by mobs of authoritarians who are trying to outdo each other on snitching on their neighbors and and kind of supporting that. And I think that's extremely dangerous because the worst totalitarian systems we have came out of precisely those kinds of moments of crisis, whether it's the, the, the rise of socialism and communism in the East in, in 1919 and, and onwards, or the rise of right-wing fascism and in the West in 1930 and onwards, um, both precipitated by economic crisis, both precipitated by pandemics, both precipitated by social crisis and monetary crisis. And so we have that trifecta of uh, economic, monetary, and health crisis, social crisis that is happening at the same time. Uh, and you know, in every country in the world, a solid 20 to 30% of the population will cheer on the brown shirts before they put a brown shirt on themselves, right? And I, I feel that democracy and, and social order is a very fragile thing. 
So uh, I'm, I'm worried that we're going to see potentially very, very rapid and very extreme change in places that we thought until now were relatively stable and long running. You know, what happened in Hungary is not surprising for Hungary. But let's not forget that Spain had a 40-year fascist government you know, up into the late 70s. And this stuff can happen again in Europe. It can happen in developed countries. It can happen in the US. Uh, and it can most certainly happen in a lot of other countries that are struggling with very, very young democracies and barely developed institutions. So I am worried about the outcome of this. And I'm more worried not about the people in uniform who will come and tell me what to do, but about my own neighbors cheering them on as they drag me off into a van, right? Um, yeah. Because that has happened in history before again and again. Um, I'm, I'm also worried that one of the things we're going to see is an end to a kind of globalized travel-friendly culture. Um, you know, I lived as a nomad for many years, and... That gave me a degree of freedom and self-determination um, that, that is rare. I, I recognize that. Um, as someone with a U.S. and a British passport, I had a lot of options for visa-free travel. I'm worried that I'm never going to see that world again. Yeah. Just, just how the you know, World War II introduced passports and then ended kind of uh, paper-free uh, travel and, and immigration around the world permanently, uh, I worry that this will also end many of the traditions of free travel that, that some of us enjoy. Uh, and instead of those spreading to more people, we're going to see them uh, kind of more greatly restricted. Um, right. Let's finish, let's finish, finish on a positive note, though. Like, yes. What are you optimistic about? Like, what, well, what, what do you I'm think else could, could come out? What because I'm uh, the reason I ask is that I, I think if if we come out of this in too much of a if we've lost too much people have suffered too much we may see pockets of revolutions pop up we yes. may see people reject the state reject the status quo and say look no we've had enough of this yes we can't absolutely. carry on like this absolutely some places will see this change uh, emerging in positive directions, and it may galvanize various movements. One of the things that I, I think is very optimistic, which I, I find very positive, is, is the fact that, in essence, this is something that happens to all of us. And the one thing that coronavirus uh, affects is humans. And this is, in, in some way, a unifying and galvanizing effect for all of humanity we are all equally susceptible to this and there is nowhere to escape from it. That is actually a, a common human threat that we haven't faced for a very long time. Um, and it crosses all possible dividing lines of humanity. It's forced us in many cases to now use online systems and communication systems, or it's forced everybody else to use them as much as I and you do. Yes. Um, I've been working <laughs> from home since 1994. Uh, right. And I haven't worked in an office for more than a couple of years in the entire 30 years I've, I've been a professional. And throughout that time, I was the weird one. 
And now everybody gets to live my life under the worst possible circumstances because, you know, it's, it's very different to work from home when you can leave and when you can't. But, but still, everybody gets to use the tools, um, have a reason to need the tools. It's breaking a lot of illusions. A lot of the meetings that we were having weren't necessary after all, or a lot of the face-to-face -face time wasn't necessary. A lot of the jobs that we thought had to be done in an office clearly don't. So a lot of these illusions, which are mostly kind of effects of habit, this is how we've done it, therefore this is how we must do it. No, why? Uh, the, the iconoclasts are winning, right? Because nothing is, nothing can be taken for granted, therefore nothing is sacred, therefore everything can be reimagined. And that is a positive thing. So if we come out of this with uh, um, a greater uh, understanding of how we can live more of our lives online, a greater appreciation for people whose professions until now were considered not that important, you know, n no, nobody uh, is uh, clamoring to visit their VC because they started coughing, right? But we have a newfound appreciation for supermarket checkout people. And, and so I think these are good things that come out of this. Another example would be, at this point, I don't see, I don't see it very likely for, in the U.S., the, the Democratic Convention and then possibly the November election to happen in person or with ballots of traditional form. The U.S. has a very, very broken electoral system, forcing vote by mail for no, for no or any reason everywhere in the U.S., which may become a necessity in order for us to hold the November election, uh, may be a good outcome. Right, that would revitalize American democracy in a way nothing else has, uh, and overcome decades of resistance. So, from that perspective, I think a lot of positive change comes simply because there are no sacred traditions, right? And a lot of the petty, tiny, small problems that we all had have disappeared very, very quickly because we all have big and real problems now. Yeah, so a friend of mine put one of those messages up on Facebook this morning. It's one of those copy and paste jobs, and I don't agree with all of it, but it was very quite good. I'm going to read some bits to you. It's, Traffic is gone. Fuel is affordable. Kids are at home with their families. Parents are taking care of their children. Fast food has been replaced by home-cooked meals. Hectic schedules replaced by naps. The air seems cleaner. The world's quieter. People are conscious about hygiene and health again. Um, yeah, we've had time to finally stop and smell the roses, finally get to see a woman's real eyebrows and hair colour. It seems like this may be the reset button. And I normally ignore those copy and pastings that go around and around because I just don't care. But I was like, actually, there's some real truth in this. Yeah, I've spent so much time with my kids recently. We go out every day for our government-approved exercise, but actually spend some time together, which is great. And yeah. I cooked, I've cooked every day, Andreas. Yeah, it's not happened. Week. Yeah, and and, yeah. and I've been run. I've been running every day, which I haven't done for a long time. And yeah, I do, it's it's horrible that a, 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 this horrible public health crisis is the reasons it's happened. But it has happened, and I I just hope personally, as we come out the end of this, that some of these lifestyle changes changes remain, that we don't go back into that that old world. I, I really hope we don't. I I hope personally, I maintain some of it. I really do. So. Yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, anyway. I, that, that's a good 
positive notes to to end on. Yes. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, after we went through the misery. I'm I'm going to piss on it now a bit, um, <laughs> okay. and you can cut this out of the podcast. <laughs> No, I don't have one to. of the things that I, I, I am concerned about is that we are experiencing the privileged version of quarantine, yes. where we are not at risk of being homeless tomorrow. We are not at risk of running out of food. We are not at risk of getting this because we have to go to a place where we're going to be exposed to other people. So, so from that perspective, it can be very, very rewarding, or you can take the best out of it. What I'm really worried about is there's a vast poor underclass in the US, um, but even more so in other countries where this is now an existential threat, very, very serious existential threat, where mm -hmm. they're facing homelessness, uh, uh, food insecurity, and health insecurity simultaneously. You know, we, we talk about, oh, it's such a drag, I have to do social isolation. Well, if you live in Mumbai, you can't. I mean, it's not a matter of should you, should you not, do I go to spring break, do I not go to spring break, can I go to the beach, can I walk my dog, right? It's uh, very, very tightly packed. So the best you can do in terms of social isolation it doesn't even come close to what needs to be done. So I'm very worried that we're going to have, as always, a very different experience for big parts of the human population where one yeah. part of humanity is going to experience this the way, I don't know who this guy was, who was sending photos from his yacht, uh, billionaire sending photos from his yacht, complaining about quarantine, um, but in a sarcastic way. There's going to be a vast underclass that is going to experience this as a catastrophic thing that kills half of the people in the family and leaves the rest destitute and starving. So I, I think one of, the, one of the dangers here is that we get through this with vastly different experiences. And that some parts of the population cannot see the experiences that other parts of the population are having because we're in, in effect very isolated from that. And, and that's, a, that's a recipe for bad outcomes. Um, well, media, the media certainly has a responsibility there. Um, I, I have seen some of it covered. I just interviewed a health communications worker out in Kenya yeah. talking about the problems out there, the difference problems. So, for example, the population is not far off the UK. It's 10 million less, mm. whereas the UK has 3,900 ICU beds. They have 155, and our ability to scale up is a lot easier. Mm -hmm. But she said, she said, you can't just put these people into quarantine you can try but it's these people live hand to mouth every month if you're not providing them with food yeah they're going to have to do something and she said the majority of these people would rather die from a disease than die from hunger yeah and you can't do anything about that of course and and the well there is one silver lining which is that the average age uh in india and the average age in africa is in the mid-20s um, so the fact that uh, COVID is a boomer remover, as they jokingly call it in the U.S., mm. may actually mean that it's less um, of a disaster uh, in countries where the average population age is extremely young. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking more of places like Louisiana, for example, well, which is now, I think, the third worst break, uh, outbreak in the U.S. Yes, you're correct. And one of the poorest places in the U.S. Um, 
and it's going to be a disaster there. So anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, let's end on the positive note. Um, and <laughs> you're healthy. I'm healthy. Count, and it's count our blessings. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really do. Look, I appreciate every time we talk. Appreciate you having on. Yeah. Just stay healthy. Thank you. Stay you in too. touch. I'm sure we'll speak again before yeah. this is over. And absolutely. Uh, but it's always a pleasure. You take care, and I'll see you soon. Yeah. You should always do this, and you should always chat out where people can follow your work. Oh, I mean, it's it's the usual places. So A. Antonop is my username, A. Antonop on Twitter, A. Antonop on YouTube, aantonop.com is my website. Almost all of my work is uh, under open licenses and available to read, mash up, and reuse for free. Amazing. Well, listen, take care, and I'll yeah. see you soon. Thank you so much, Peter. Okay, so what did you think of that? Did you enjoy that show with Andreas? I know there are people in Bitcoin who take a very firm approach to liberty, but my own journey in understanding libertarian often leads to more questions. There are parts of this, or some ideas that I haven't been able to fully rationalize or, or picture happening. And if you go back and listen to my interview with Eric Voorhees a while back, we talked about this, and rather than trying to imagine a libertarian society right now let's talk about the reduction a five percent reduction in government which is something that's always appealed to me that idea of how do you reduce government rather than just having the big red button because the consequences of the big red button we don't know and also it's quite unrealistic but that idea of reducing government is something that did appeal to me now I have read a lot. I have researched a lot. I've I've read everything that people have sent to me. I'm reading different libertarian papers and blogs and watching interviews. And there are a broad set of ideas around this right now. There are libertarians who are debating the role of the state right now. Is it needed? Should it be full rejection right now? Is it absolutely necessary to have the state do something right now? Or if the state is going to do something, how do we ensure that there is not too much of an erosion of our civil liberties. And I think these are all important topics. It's an important part of my own journey in understanding this, that I do question everything. So whilst there has been some various, various amount of feedback about these things I'm challenging, that it is positive and negative. There are other people going through this too. So I'm going to keep asking these questions. They're important for me. And also, as a lot of you have written to me, sharing your opinions and offering different alternative I appreciate that you have taken the time to do that. Now, Andres is definitely one of my favourite people to interview. I always love hearing his view on things. And this one was quite different because we didn't really touch on Bitcoin too much, but I really enjoyed doing that. He's always a pleasure to have on the show. And I do recommend going and checking out my previous two interviews with him. They're both absolute bangers. Anyway, hope you enjoyed the show. If you do want to reach out to me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And as I mentioned in the intro, during this lockdown, I am continuing to work hard on creating the best and relevant content. I've got some amazing interviews coming up. If you are interested in checking out any of my other work, I do have another show. It's called Defiance. You can see that at defiance.news. tend to cover topics outside of Bitcoin that you might be interested in. Obviously, quite coronavirus focus at the moment. I've interviewed an ICU doctor from London. I've also interviewed a health communications worker in Kenya talking about the challenges that African countries are facing. I've also got a couple of films out there about Venezuela, which are worth checking out. I would love you to see my other work. If you do, please do feedback to me. It's always great to hear from you. And yeah, I hope everyone's doing well during this crisis. This lockdown is very, very strange. And I hope you're all staying healthy, both in mind and physically. And if you want to talk to me, if you want to reach out to me, do my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, look, have a great weekend. Bye.